0: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm so happy today to welcome Douglas Bomberger to the um, podcast, and he is here to talk about his new book from the University of Oxford Press, Making Music American, 1917 and the Transformation of Culture. Welcome, Dr. Bomberger. I'm so happy to have you here.
1: Thank you. It's good to be with you.
0: Um, This is a really fascinating book. It is designed to, I think, both be a trade publication and, of course, a book that scholars will enjoy as well. So I think it, um, I want us to start off by talking about the structure you've chosen, which I think works so well. So you focus just on one year. And each chapter is a month in that year. And you also focus on eight uh, people that you follow sort of what happens to them over the course of that year. So I wanted to start off our conversation just sort of talking a little bit about why you chose the year, why you chose this format and, and those sorts of, sort of structural questions to start off. So. Um, this is about 1917. Why did you choose 1917 to focus on as opposed to maybe some other year in that sort of basic pre-war um, or World War One era?
1: Your question gets really at the heart of why I wrote this book. Uh, I have long been fascinated by the kind of narrative nonfiction uh, books that bring several different stories together and combine them concurrently. I'm thinking, for instance, of The Bully Pulpit by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which looked at William Howard Taft and Theodore Roosevelt, or The Warmth of Other Suns, which looked at uh, three persons who made the Great Migration North. Uh, And what I wanted to try and do was to see if that kind of structure could be applied to a book on music. And so the choice of 1917 had as much to do with the narrative structure and my interest in giving it a try as it did in the the things that actually happened that year. Now, what I discovered about this was that it was the ideal year to use with this sort of structure because there were several different things that were happening at the same time. And so the concurrence of these different trends in music really was what drew me to the project. And this was the year when we first saw jazz being marketed to a nationwide audience this was the year when the German American composers and conductors who had been so prominent in American music were suddenly uh, under suspicion and so the concurrence of these and other trends was what drew me to this year and this topic
0: and is sort there of- partially answer this question, but it sounds like so you decided to use the month-by-month structure prior to even writing the book at all, or was that something that came to you as you did the research and sort of thought about the book more?
1: That was something that evolved gradually as I worked with the topic. Uh, It seemed like this would be a good year to uh, apply some sort of narrative technique to, but I wasn't sure exactly when I started how it would work out as I began digging into the research, I realized that New Year's Eve of 1916 was kind of an important event that told us a lot of things about what was going to happen in the year ahead. And so I actually began where the book begins, and that is on New Year's Eve. And so starting with that moment in history, it set up some of the things that would happen later on, and this then was intriguing. I didn't know from the beginning that I would be going month by month, but as I worked with it, it seemed to make sense, and so that was the direction that I moved.
0: One of the things I like about that approach is, one, the chapters tend to be sort of shorter, which I think is great for um, the sort of trade publication um, audience, but also it really gives you an idea which is so hard to get across in so many scholarly books about all the things that are happening at once, right? Um, and so that you get a sense of, of sort of what it's like to live in that time period because no one lives in a world where only one strand of narrative is actually important, right? And um, it really gets that across well, with that month-by-month month structure. Is that something that was important to you or is that just a happy byproduct?
1: You actually read my mind. That is precisely what I found attractive about it, because when we pick up the newspaper in the morning, uh, there are stories that have been going on for months, and this is the end of the story. There are other stories that are just being started that are we're reading about for the first time, but yet they're on the same page of the newspaper. And this is what I found fascinating, was the way these things overlap. Um, in particular, there were two months that really struck me as crucial in this regard. One was the month of April in which so many things started. Uh, this was the month that uh, the U.S. entered World War I. This was also the month of the first jazz recording released nationally. It also happened to be the year that Scott Joplin died. And so it's the end of one era in popular music the beginning of another era in popular music coinciding with the beginning of world war one what an unusual confluence of events and uh, that i found very fascinating the big example though was november november was when everything came together in some very unexpected ways as jazz uh finally uh was given the uh really the recognition of being an important new part of American culture. At that very same moment, uh, the um, the German conductors like Karl Muck and soloists like Ernestina Schumann-Heinck and, uh, and Fritz Kreisler were really being uh, put in the hot seat. They were really being ostracized. And all of this was happening at the same time as the first casualties were being reported from France and at the same time as uh, Storyville which many people consider the birthplace of jazz was being closed and so all of that came together in the month of November for a kind of a fascinating confluence of events
0: yeah that that really was quite striking that all of that happened in in the same time i think it's the same sort of thing if someone were to write a book on 1963 or 1964, how much was happening every month in those years? It's the same sort of thing where you can't believe the amount that sort of comes uh, rushing at people in in one.
1: Yes, it would be an ideal uh, year to apply this same te- technique to because of those, exactly those confluences that you mentioned.
0: Um, So you started talking a little bit about some of the people that you focused on. And that was another one of my questions. It's pretty clear you know, as we look through the book that there's two um, basic threads you're following, as you've already articulated. There's one that has to do with um, uh, anti-German sentiment and classical music or the music of Western classical tradition. And then another is is what happens with jazz in 1917. But um, there's a lot of people to choose from that you could talk about in that. And then you've chosen eight, uh, particular figures. And I don't want to try to list them all at once because eight people is a hard list for people listening to. <laughs> That's a lot of people to keep track of, but maybe you could, we could start out by just, um, understanding what was the criteria that you used to make the decision about what people you wanted to focus on for this book.
1: That was one of the hardest decisions because as you say, there are so many people doing interesting and important things, um, I had thought at the very beginning that it might be possible to include some of the other early pioneers of jazz. So, for instance, uh, Jelly Roll Morton or Joe Oliver or maybe even Louis Armstrong. But as I dug deeper into their stories, I realized that I didn't have the kind of information that would allow me to tell their stories in the same depth as I could these other persons that i did choose so reluctantly i had to mention them in passing but not to make them the principal characters of this particular story um, one could go to 1923 and those people that i mentioned would play a really crucial role but in 1917 they were still sort of in the background and so i was not able to uh to uh, look at them thoroughly the advantage of the eight that i chose is that each of them was very much in the news and uh, in front of a national audience. And so my feeling was that I wanted to look at the cultural history of music in this era. And so it needed to be something not just that was happening in the background that would eventually be recognized as important, but something that was really front and center and recognized at the time as being important.
0: So... Uh, let's just start with sort of the thread of the Western classical tradition, if you don't mind. You had five musicians who worked in that tradition that you uh, focused on. And um, one of the things that struck me is that you chose a violinist, you cho- chose three performers, a violinist, Fritz Chrysler, a pianist named Olga Samaroff, who's actually uh, American, but she um, took on a uh, uh, performing name that sounds Russian, as so many uh, compo- uh, uh, performers in that period did. Being American was sort of boring, I guess. And um, and then Ernestina schumann Heink, who's a singer. And then you have two conductors, Karl Much and uh, Walter Damrosch. No composers. And this, uh, you know, for those of us who are musicologists, uh, we are so centered around composers. So why not choose a composer as one of your classical tradition folks?
1: That is a good question. Uh, I do mention the composer Percy Granger uh, several times during the book, uh, although I don't follow his story as closely. But uh, what I was most interested in was the cultural history of this year. And uh, so uh, although it's interesting and uh, important what was being composed, uh, this was not the primary focus. I think I was probably influenced in this thinking by Joseph Horowitz's uh, History of American Music, in which he argues that the history of music in the United States is at least as much about the history of performance as it is about the history of composition.
0: Well, I think that's true, especially when you uh, consider what happened in 1917. It It makes a lot of sense why you didn't choose a composer, but um, it certainly stands out. It's one of those things that's unusual in a musicology book. And I sort of appreciated it because uh, personally, I think we tend to think too much about composers and not enough <laughs> about uh, the, the people who perform the music in musicology in general. So it was, it was a nice change, I think. Um, so you've got these five figures, four of them um, are, I believe they're native German speakers, right? Only Ogo Samaroff is not, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, The other four were either born in Europe, uh, or excuse me, all four of them were born in uh, Germany or Austria. And uh, so, in a sense, they were transnational musicians. Walter Damrush came over as a child, and he was thoroughly um, acculturated. He was a U.S. citizen. By this time, he was married to the daughter of the former Secretary of State and presidential candidate, so he was very much American. Fritz Kreisler uh, was not yet a U.S. citizen, but he was married to an American woman, and so he also had very strong connections. Uh, On the other hand, um, Carl Muck was still very much a Swiss citizen he uh, had been born in germany but he had swiss citizenship and uh he did not make an effort to change his citizenship status and this would have really important ramifications later in the period
0: so um it's it's just fascinating how as as a Amer- as the american public turns against germany as they you know get closer and closer to actually fighting in the war um uh it it has a sort of an explosive effect on um the classical musical world in um in America. Why is that? Why does it matter that German music gets tied up with this anti-German sentiment?
1: I think that's really the crucial question. Um uh, the the thing that was debated most of all is whether German music is a cosmopolitan musical form that is the property of all countries and all people, or whether it is specific to Germany. And now that Germany is the enemy, does that mean that their music needs to be ostracized as well? This is the first time in U.S. history that... Americans really looked hard at this question, and uh, as the war began, uh, Americans really came down strongly on the view that German music was a nationalistic German product, and uh, they really uh, ostracized it because of that. On the other hand, in World War II, there was a very much more open attitude, and the uh, the approach was not nearly so. Uh, reactionary or exclusive in World War II. But this was the first time that Americans had really grappled with these issues. And I think uh, there was uh, a fair amount of extremism in the response to it in World War I. Um,
0: I think also what strikes me, however, at least in the way that I understood what you were saying, was that it seemed like, the at least at first, the audience was less concerned about these issues than um, the people who didn't go to those concerts um, and the press was. And um, a- am I getting that right? That it seemed like um, at first it was sort of, if we could use the term sort of outside agitation that made more of a difference to what was happening. Uh, in the concert hall than, uh, than the actual um, audience members themselves being disapproving of hearing German music.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. The, I think the nature of musicians is that we tend to sort of listen to music with our heads in the sand. And we like what we like. We enjoy what we uh, what we hear, and uh, and so political issues for most musicians are not at the front and center of their uh, consciousness. This was certainly true of several of these uh, German-born musicians. They didn't see it coming they did not expect that this would be a problem because audiences had always loved them in America. And uh, this was a time period when uh, there was a lot of support for classical music and uh, people loved the performances that were being given. And uh, so when it suddenly changed in uh, the fall of 1917, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, so this was, uh, you're absolutely right, that uh, it, it began with outside agitation. And one of the persons who was a real agitator was the, uh, for this was the editor of the Providence newspaper, uh, the Providence Journal. And uh, Providence, Rhode Island was a city that was within an hour of Boston. And so the Boston Symphony Orchestra often performed there. In October of 1917, they had their first concert in Providence. And uh, Providence had always been friendly territory. People loved that uh, audience there. and, uh, And the orchestra was a favorite with the Providence audience. But the editor agitated in advance to stir people up and to get people excited about this potential spy. Carl Mook, who was leading the Boston Symphony Orchestra. So what happened was on the afternoon of that first performance of the season, uh, a group of people who were not subscribers to the symphony, but were uh, performing at the institution, instigation rather, of uh, the editor, uh, wrote a telegram to the Boston Symphony Orchestra demanding that the Star-Spangled Banner be played before the concert. The Boston Symphony Orchestra at that time did not ever play the Star-Spangled Banner, and uh, this was a tradition that had not yet been established. And so uh, they ignored the request, and that turned out to be a huge mistake because once the editor got hold of this, then it got spread all over the country, and politicians and editors and writers who were not musicians, who had no interest in the music, took this as a political issue and really ran with it. And that was when things really started to change.
0: Well, I was really struck by how um, contemporary this story felt to me. Um, I work in this period, as do you, and, uh, and I've had so many conversations over the last several years about how much the turn of the 20th century reminds me of today's Political and media environment, and this is a great example of fake news. And you, you even, uh, I think at least once used that word because, uh, particularly with Karl Milk, who was a Swiss citizen, um, he was vilified, um, and then didn't know how to respond to it. Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of how the media environment in the time? Uh, contributed to the problems that Mulk had, that ultimately led to um, uh, to really his career his career ending in the United States.
1: I think it was Mark Twain who said that a lie goes halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on, and uh, that was certainly the case in this instance. Um, those fake news stories spread so fast, and it was like. It was really like whack-a-mole. The uh, the management of the Boston Symphony Orchestra could not tamp down all those false rumors fast enough, and they kept springing up in different places. And this was happening in a time period when there was a lot of genuine concern about the possibility of spies and saboteurs uh, setting off bombs in the United States. And so this was certainly a genuine concern, but the idea of of expanding that to the, uh, the musical uh, performers of the time uh, was, uh, was sort of a false equivalence. And uh, they really uh, took it to uh, a realm where it would not have needed to be taken. Uh, one of the intriguing things about Carl Muck is that he was a true scholar. And uh, he had his head in his books and in his music all the time, uh, i found some interesting letters in the New England Conservatory Library that, uh, in which his wife apologized for his missing appointments, and uh, it was uh, it was apparently typical that he would get so engrossed in his music that he wouldn't even think about what was going on around him. And so, I think a man like that is woefully unprepared for dealing with such a political climate and being in the uh, in the spotlight of uh, criticism, and uh, he he tried at first to just simply ignore it and to say, "I'm a musician, don't bother me with politics, but in this case he re- that was a mistake, and uh, he uh, came to regret that if he had approached this immediately forthrightly the way Walter Damrosch or Fritz Chrysler did, he might have come out better in the end
0: well. When he when you quoted him, I think it was him uh, talking about how music had no politics and that it was separated from politics. I thought, wow, you know, this is the same argument that we still have, where there are people who just want to depoliticize music completely. But, um, you know, his, his. what happened to him shows how that's impossible. That music, even if you don't want to think of it as political, is political. And particularly in a highly politicized time like 1917 was, or like 2019 is, um, it's it's um, really folly to try to pretend that people aren't seeing um, art through a political lens.
1: I think you're absolutely right, and uh, in particular, one of the stories that impressed me as being parallel to our current. Climate is the responses to the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, the Star Spangled Banner is truly a loaded piece of music. It has such strong psychological and emotional uh, content uh, that you can't ignore that. And uh, so uh, there were different ways of approaching it during this 1917 year. And I found it fascinating the way. The Star-Spangled Banner was used as a political tool. This was the first time in U.S. history when it became obligatory to stand when the anthem was played. And so the question became... How often should we stand and suppose it's just part of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or suppose it's being played in a cabaret by a jazz band? Do we still need to stand and pretend that this is a solemn occasion? And so these kinds of questions were being argued about for the first time. And uh, it was very easy for one group or another to accuse folks of being disrespectful uh, when the anthem was played and they didn't receive the kind of response that they wanted. Because the Star Spangled Banner was such a hot button issue during this time, uh, it was heard in all kinds of places. It was heard in uh, the incidental music to plays. It was heard in jazz band performances and ragtime performances eventually the new york mayor outlawed ragtime performances of the star-spangled banner because he felt it was disrespectful and at the same time in may 1917 the uh, u.s uh, secretary of education commissioned a group of five musicians to come up with an official version of the star-spangled banner because up till this time there was no uniform edition So this committee worked for, uh, four or five months putting this together. And, uh, eventually then in December, Walter Damrosch premiered it with his New York symphony. And it was immediately panned because despite their best efforts, uh, the, uh, the new arrangement did not satisfy everybody. And, uh, there was more criticism than, uh, than love for this new version of the anthem. And, uh, the publisher then withdrew the publication, and uh, educators were clamoring for this ed- uh, new version in 1918. Eventually, Walter Damrush said, if I'd have known how much trouble this was going to be, I never would have agreed to be on this committee.
0: Well, and not only did Damrush sort of get burned by that, but Carl Mook really did too, because Uh, The only arrangement that I guess the Boston Library could find was this, what sounds like a very, um, uh, I don't know, ornate arrangement uh, that was found at the end of a piece by Victor Herbert. And that also became quite controversial uh, as well.
1: It was a fascinating thing to listen to that. Uh, you can actually find a recording of that today and uh, it is uh, part of a fantasy on uh, patriotic themes by Victor Herbert and uh, the last two minutes is what they used for their version because they simply didn't have a score for uh, just a plain anthem and uh, it's wild. The uh, the violins are, are playing rapid figuration up and down around the melody the brass have the main tune, uh, there are Percussion uh, instruments playing incessantly, the uh, the uh, cymbals and the triangle and the snare drum, and then at the very end there is this syncopated lick that sounds exactly like jazz. And one critic in Philadelphia actually accused the orchestra of playing the Star Spangled Banner in jazz style. And I found it fascinating that uh, the the critic knew enough about jazz by late 1917, that he could actually accuse them of uh, having adopted jazz style.
0: Um, So Karl Malk had a a sort of terrible... um uh, ending uh, in, to his career uh, because of this anti-German sentiment and the way that uh, it was mis- he and the Boston Symphony mishandled this. He ended up being removed from the orchestra. He en- he was in an inter- internment camp sort of situation for a while, and then he was deported. Is it isn't that correct? Uh, do I have that right?
1: That is correct. Yes, uh, it's intriguing. Despite. The availability of a lot of documents in the uh, in the National Archives, we don't know for sure why he was arrested, but uh, he was arrested in March of 1918, and he spent the rest of the war in an internment camp. When it was time for him to leave the country, the U.S. authorities were so concerned about his possible influence and escape that they escorted him on board the ship. Uh, and uh, they watched at the pier to make sure that he didn't escape from the ship as it was pulling away to go to Europe. Uh, A New York Times reporter interviewed him as he was getting ready to leave, and uh, his response to that reporter was that he was really bitter about the whole experience. He said, I considered myself an American, but they told me I was German. And uh, this was uh, his uh, response to his treatment at the hands of the U.S. intelligence services.
0: Well, that would be quite an archival find, if anyone could actually figure out why they were so scared of him, because it's really hard to believe that he was a a master spy or something. So um, it's unfortunate that you didn't find it. Maybe it's out there someplace.
1: Who knows? There have been a lot of people digging for it, so maybe someday it'll come to light.
0: But what really intrigued me is, so you have Karl Muck, who has so many problems. Um, you know, you've uh, explained his end, and then you have Ernestina. Sch- is it Ernestina schumann heinck
1: Ernestina schumann yes. who's a
0: singer, and she was in her fifties by this time. She she had been an opera singer. but She didn't do too much opera anymore. She was more concert singer, much beloved. Not only was she German, but one of her children was fighting with the German forces, and then she had other sons who were fighting with the American um, side. And one would think that someone who actually had a child in the army of the enemy would have a bigger problem than a random um, uh, conductor of the Boston Symphony, though he was, of course, quite prominent. So, how did she manage? To handle this problem, because uh, that would seem to be, uh, she would be ripe for the kinds of attacks that Karl Muck, um, uh suffered.
1: She was extremely astute politically, and one of the things she realized early on was that she was in a precarious position. And uh, she had one son who was serving in the German Navy. He was her oldest son, and then she had four younger sons by a later marriage who eventually enlisted in the US military and so she was really caught between and uh, what she often said in interviews was that she loved germany she loved her family but she also was loyal to her adopted country of the united states and so this dual loyalty was one that was played up in the press uh, this was a story that was very much of a human interest story for uh, families in the United States, because they could really see her uh, her dilemma of having sons serving in both militaries and having divided loyalties in this way. One of the ways that she responded to this was giving frequent performances for soldiers and sailors. And so she would go to training camps, she would go to other places and perform for them. She typically mixed her repertoire. She would do maybe a few songs in German, but mostly songs in English. She still, after all these years in the United States, had a very thick German accent. And so uh, she was uh, adept at making jokes at her own expense about her German accent. She had a heartwarming singing style that was really appealing to audiences. And uh, she also had a remarkable longevity as a singer. Many people are winding down their careers in their 50s, but she continued strong into her 70s and was still performing uh, right up to the end. She is called by the New Grove Dictionary uh, the last great contralto. And she had a really unusually low Voice And uh, the richness and warmth of her singing, along with her ability to make emotional connections with her audiences, was what endeared her to people everywhere. Now, what I found when I uh, did some more research at the National Archives was that even though in public she was beloved, and even though in public she was able to walk this fine line very uh astutely, in private, she was being investigated by the Bureau of uh, Investigation. And uh, she was interviewed several times, and uh, they were suspicious of her, just as they were of Karl Muck. But they never did find any evidence, except for the fact that she had a lot of German friends. And uh, this was their only True evidence. Uh, in 1918, she requested permission to go to France to sing for the troops there, and the uh, military intelligence said under no circumstances. And they made a concerted effort to keep her from growing, going abroad because they were genuinely concerned about the possibility that she could be a spy. And uh, so behind the scenes, there was a lot of investigation and suspicion, but in public, She was about as politically astute as you could imagine.
0: So obviously, her, um, her, as you say, her uh, political astuteness was uh, an important element of why the press treated her so differently than they treated Mook. But I also wonder, do you you think gender played a role in that as well, that she was able to um, position herself as sort of the heartbroken mother in a way that Mook never was going to be able to?
1: I think that's very true. Uh, The fact that she had children, the fact that she presented herself to the press and the public as a mother, uh, this really helped audiences to warm up to her. Mook, on the other hand, was someone without children. He presented himself as a scholar, as an authority on the musical traditions of Europe, and uh, he made no effort to be a warm uh, and uh, approachable person. And as a matter of fact, even his uh, former players uh, said in retrospect that he was one of the coldest men they'd ever worked for. And so uh, establishing personal connections was not a concern of his.
0: Um, Let's turn now to Jazz. Uh, I think we've there's so much more we could talk about, about some of the other uh, people you focus on in the classical music world, but we definitely don't want to leave, uh, leave the jazz behind either. So you focused on three uh, jazz musicians Freddie Keppard, who was a cornetist and a member of the Creole uh, ragtime band, Dominic LaRocca, who was a member of the original Dixieland jazz band, and then James Reese Europe, um, who's a band leader um, and a very important figure in New York. And he, when the book starts, he has just enlisted in Company K of the 15th Regiment of the New York National Guard, which was a, a, as they called it at the time, a colored unit. So an all black unit. Um, why those, uh, three particular figures, you had said that you couldn't do Louis Armstrong and those folks, but, um, was there, uh, particularly Freddie Keppert is someone that I think, um, may not be as well known as maybe any of the other people that you uh, decided to uh, focus on.
1: Yes, this is one who is less well-known than the others. Uh, Dominic Larocca, of course, was part of the original Dixieland Jazz Band, which had that first million-selling record. Uh, James Reese Europe was extremely well-known in New York City as a band leader, as an organizer a musician. so both of those were very well-known. Freddie Kepard, on the other hand, was a vaudeville performer. And I found it fascinating to follow his path through the country because he and his uh, band were playing split weeks in small Midwestern um, uh, theaters. And so they would play Monday through Wednesday in one theater. They would move to another theater and play Thursday through Saturday and then have a day off. And so he, in terms of live performance, Uh, influenced many, many more people than uh, La Rocca did, who stayed in one place and only performed for people who came to his cabaret. But uh, Kephart moved all over the country. And so my thinking was that this was an aspect of American musical life at the time that was really introducing this new style of music to audiences in the middle of the country, in smaller towns, in uh, inexpensive theaters, and so it was music that was almost anti-elite. It was music that was accessible to the broad public. And so that's why I chose him. And uh, and But he does very much contrast with the other two.
0: Well, I think uh, one of the things that uh, you bring out so well, and sort of as you talk about jazz, is this sort of tension that can really only happen in this period between um, recorded music and live music, and how not only how important live music was to the circulation um, of a musical style like jazz because recording was uh, still in its infancy but also um, just how difficult it was to make these recordings that these recordings were not um, it was very difficult to get a recording that is reflective at all of uh, what it sounded like live can you talk a little bit about sort of um maybe start with the recording technology itself, and then- mo- and uh we can talk later about sort of the um the importance of recording in this time period but i I just thought the way that you described what was going on in the studio was uh, was really important to understanding if we listen to these recordings, what are we actually hearing?
1: Yes, the recording technology that we're familiar with today, the electronic microphone, was not introduced until nineteen twenty five so in 1917, everything was done acoustically. So they had a large horn to collect the uh, sound waves, and that was then focused into a needle that physically cut grooves into uh, a piece of wax. And this was the method for recording. As a consequence, the, the frequency range from high to low was much reduced uh compared to what we're used to today and so the it was very limiting in that regard and also in addition to that the volume was limited so if you had too loud a sound that suddenly came out uh, for instance from a bass drum that would wreck the recording and so it meant that they were really restricted in how they could record the music. When the first jazz band recording was made in uh, Manhattan, the ODJB was spread out in the studio at uh, different distances from the horn. So the piano was right up close. The clarinet was about five feet away. The trombone was 12 to 15 feet away. The trumpet was 20 feet away. And the drums were an additional five feet 25 feet away, and so by that expedient, they managed to get a balance that sounded good on the record. But it was the only way to really reproduce the music at that time.
0: Well, and it also explains why classical music was such a problem. You know, how do you record an orchestra when uh, you have to uh, put people at such different Um, lengths away from the horn, and then you have so many people you're trying to record at once, it really explains why jazz was really a much better type of music to even try to record at that time period.
1: Precisely. We take it for granted today that we have such uh, excellent fidelity of sound, but uh, in those days, it was a real technological feat to record uh, anything, uh, let alone a full symphony orchestra. The first recordings of the full symphony orchestra happened in October, uh, which would have been about six months or so after the first jazz recording, but uh, this was really a challenge to balance those different instruments.
0: So, um, one of the things that happens in this period uh, that you study that I found quite fascinating and is related to this recording is a copyright case that comes up over that first recording. Can you talk about that um, and tell us a little bit about, you know, the legal ramifications that they were trying to work through at the time that, that were particularly challenging for the law related to recording since it was such a new technology, something that we see today as well, that new technology really challenges copyright law.
1: It really does. And uh, this was a fascinating episode that was focused on this very first jazz recording. Uh, Livery Stable Blues and uh, Original Dixieland Jazz Band was a two-sided recording that was made by the uh, Original Dixieland Jazz Band in the Victor Studio on February 26th, 1917. It was not released until mid-April, and because the members of the original Dixieland Jazz Band played by ear, apparently they didn't even think about the copyright issues. And so just a few days before the release of the record, their agent suddenly had a light bulb moment and realized that they needed to get a copyright. So he brought in a professional musician who transcribed the sound of the band, wrote it down in manuscript, and they quick sent it off to Washington. Uh, In checking the copyright division, uh, I found that the uh, really there's no honor among thieves because the uh, manager uh, registered this with himself as the claimant and the composer, no mention of the band itself. But the other thing that was really important was that he didn't realize that the record company was going to change the title on the one song. And so he listed it uh, under the title that the band always used, which was Barnyard Blues. Uh, But when the record came out a week later, it was released under the title Livery Stable Blues. And uh, so there was that discrepancy. What happened then was the following month, uh, when this thing was selling like hotcakes and making lots and lots of money, um, a group of people in Chicago... Uh, a publisher, Roger Graham, and a former band member, <clears throat> um, Alcide Nunes, went into the uh, uh, copyright office and discovered that, in fact, the copyright was registered under a different title. <clears throat> because of that, they uh, they were able to take out their own copyright for the correct title on the record, "Livery Stable Blues," and in June. They published sheet music, uh, which claimed that it was composed by this former bandmate, um, Alcide Nunez. And uh, he then was able to make money, cash in on this record. Uh, adding insult to injury, he published this sheet music with the original DCL and Jazz Band's record number on the front page. And so they were clearly trying to uh, capitalize on this uh, this. Record, which was so popular and making a lot of money, this was what then led to the uh, the lawsuit, which took place in Chicago in October, and uh, it was a comedy of errors. Uh, both sides were claiming that they had a right to this music, and the judge was hopelessly inept. He only knew classical music; he didn't know anything about jazz, and in the end, he threw up his hands and said, "I can't figure this out." All jazz is the same, so nobody's entitled to a copyright.
0: So, did that? Excuse me. Did that case have any long-term ramifications for how jazz was treated in terms of copyright, or is this sort of, you know, a great example of, I, I, I guess, the the way that um, the uh, the values of classical music were so inculcated in the people that made these decisions that they couldn't even see uh, the value that they were of, of jazz and how jazz worked. It, it, I mean, it just didn't even make any sense to them. So you see this sort of um, incredible example of how cultural hierarchy works in, in a place that people might not even consider that it's, uh, it's at, at play, but yet was um, absolutely pitiful, pivotal in how that case worked out.
1: You're right. Uh the the whole principle of copyright was based on the idea of uh printed or handwritten music and jazz is by nature an oral art and so it really is is not tied to written scores and this was the dilemma and so it, it eventually uh led to new laws, new ways of approaching uh, recorded sound. But this was a point at which there was a transition, and the courts were still trying to figure out how to deal with this. Uh, There's an interesting thesis that was written uh, by a student at Ohio State recently about this this very case, because it was an important trendsetter for what was going to happen in future decades.
0: Do you remember the name of that student? It'd be great to to be able to reference that work in the podcast.
1: The thesis in question is by Catherine Murphy Maskell, and it's entitled, Who Wrote Those Livery Stable Blues? Authorship Rights in Jazz and Law, as Evidenced in Hart et al. v. Graham. This was done at Ohio State University in 2012.
0: And I know also another person I'd like to shout out about who's working on this is Matthew Morrison, who's at NYU, and he's taking a very sort of cultural theory uh, approach to it as well and racial theory approach to it. But I think it's so important to think about, um, you know, this particular moment as we see uh, how race and culture and um, music come together in this legal question in a way that serves to really discount um, and invalidate the uh, production of um, Black musicians and, and Black music. And this case really shows that in such sharp relief as we see this white judge who is you know, all about classical music, un- unable to even comprehend what he's listening to. It's, it's quite a, an, an amazing moment um, to, that illustrates so many things that were happening in the United
1: States at that time. It is an interesting case for sure.
0: So and to bring race again into it is something um, that's particularly um, uh, momentous in in your story with Jim Europe and um, his band and this 15th regiment, because um, I think of all of them, um, of all of the people that you talk about, they are subjected or maybe that's not the word I want, but their experiences um Really, throw into relief the uh, what was happening in terms of race relations at this time period. Um, so, and I found it fascinating not only as we see them move around the country and and sort of how they were treated by uh, the local population, depending upon where the regiment was um, uh, headquartered, but also to see how the commander of the regiment tried to use the band um, that James Reese Europe was um, conducting as a way to kind of negotiate these racial tensions.
1: It's really true. It was one of the most inspiring parts of the book for me to write, uh, to learn about this story and to see some of the strategies that were being used at this time. Uh, I'm sure you picked up the fact that the Wilson administration was very much committed to a segregated military. And so they wanted to keep the races separate. They wanted to avoid having them integrate. Uh, And this created real problems administratively as well as culturally. And the reason is because there were millions of draftees of African-American descent. And uh, the question is, was, uh, what can we do with these recruits? How can we incorporate them into the army and use them effectively if we're going to stick with a segregated policy? In the case of the Europe Band, they proved their discipline, they proved their uh, uh, potential for making contributions, and so the military decided to avoid the issue of integration altogether altogether by sending them to France and attaching them to a French unit. So they were actually incorporated into a French regiment. And uh, since the French had been uh, welcoming North African troops for generations, this uh, racial issue was not as big a problem for them. And so for that reason, uh, the, uh, the band was able to uh, be heard all over Europe, and also the uh, the military uh, unit was able to make some important contributions to the war by working with the French.
0: so um, when Europe entered the military, um, I, was it the the um, commander of that regiment, it was Colonel Hayward. It was his name, I believe. And he wanted a band. And Europe said he would only do it if he could get the best band, like he was not interested in fielding um, some kind of subpar uh, group. Do you think that Hayward had in mind from the start that he could use the band as a way to um, sort of ingratiate uh, the the regiment as a whole into, um, you know, into the communities in which they were going to be living in the U.S.? Or, you know, wh- what was the uh, motivation, do you think, of acceding to uh, Europe's? Um, uh, conditions.
1: My suspicion is that Hayward was a traditional military man, and he had in mind a picture of a a well-disciplined group of soldiers marching to the sounds of a traditional military band. And so this was what he wanted, and he hadn't really thought much about the particulars of it. But Europe, of course, had a much higher view of what Music could be. And uh, he was an experienced musician, one of the leading African American musicians of the day. And so, as you say, he really didn't want to direct a subpar band. And uh, he had joined the uh, National Guard unit uh, as part of his commitment to his community, but not necessarily because he wanted to be involved musically. It seems that he set some fairly rigorous stipulations on what he needed in order to discourage the colonel from actually following through. But the colonel proved to be resourceful and found a wealthy donor who was willing to support James Reese Europe's plans. And uh, this then allowed him to follow through with creating the best military band in the country.
0: I I had no idea that it took private money to create that band. And I I think that's really fascinating. Um, Do you... I don't know how uh, do you have any idea why this donor decided to to um, support this band? Um, is that I mean that just seems like an odd request and and uh, sort of amazing that he could get money for that
1: One of the connections that I found intriguing is that at this period that we think of as the end of the Gilded Age when there were some fabulously wealthy Uh, industrialists who had earned their money not always in the uh, most ethical way. Uh, One of the ways in which they spent their money was in support of the arts. And so we're familiar, for instance, with uh, Andrew Carnegie and his uh, building of Carnegie Hall. We're familiar with uh, Henry Higginson, who supported the uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra to the tune of 50,000 a year. Uh, we're familiar with the uh, supporters of the New York Symphony and other organizations like that. But it's intriguing that Daniel Reed, who was known as the Tin Plate King, uh, was willing to support this National Guard band. And we don't really know why that was, but he, like other industrialists, was willing to put his money into support of the arts. And uh, that is one reason why the arts really flourished during this period.
0: Yeah, as, as I'm hearing your answer, it occurs to me that I don't think I can think of another example from this time period of a wealthy donor supporting popular music in this way. I mean, Europe did play military music, but he was also playing jazz with this With this group. And I mean, everyone else I can think of was still supporting classical music. Is is it a lone example from this period of that sort of support?
1: I think it has to do with a matter of scale. Uh, The original Dixieland Jazz Band was five members. The uh, Creole Ragtime Band was seven members. And so those uh, types at that scale, at that size, they can make money, without much outside support on the other hand europe said a 28 member band is not enough for me i want 44 at minimum preferably 60. so the reason he needed that outside support was because he was dreaming big and he wanted to go so much beyond the numerical size of the Army regulations. And this is the same reason why the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the New York Symphony needed outside support, because there are so many top flight musicians in a 95 member orchestra that you can't bring in enough money from ticket sales to cover the costs.
0: Well, I hope that, uh, as people who are listening to this um, will get a sense of of just really how um, interesting this book is and how you're able to um, touch on so many different topics while maintaining a really coherent thread as well of these sort of two main stories, the sort of anti-German sentiment and how that affects classical music and, and then this development of jazz and, and uh, sort of the tendrils of that and how that affects technology and copyright and uh, Europe's career and so forth. So, um, uh, so I thank you for this book. It's been really interesting to talk to you about it. And, and perhaps we can end this um, interview just thinking about, you know, what is on your plate next? What are you working on right now?
1: I'm wrapping up a number of stories that were inspired by this book, and uh, so these will be articles and conference papers rather than a full book at this point, but let me give you a taste of a few of them. Uh, One is that in my research on the Livery Stable Blues record, I discovered that we know an awful lot about the recording session at which this was made but there was absolutely no consensus in the scholarly world on when this was actually released. And my feeling is that the release date is very important because of the cultural importance of this record. And so I was able to pin down that date, and uh, my findings will be published later this year in the Jazz Archivist. In addition to that, then, I'm uh, writing about another aspect of this anti-German um, sentiment and this was a shadowy propaganda magazine that was uh, marketed only to an elite few in the eastern cities but it had a tremendous influence in inspiring people to uh, to take up arms against these German musicians. And so that article will be coming out next year in the Journal of the Society for American Music. I'm also thinking at this point that I would really like to learn more about Ernestina schumann Heink, and in particular, how her career was so different from uh, uh, some of her contemporary American operatic singers who uh, took a very different approach to uh, patriotism during this period. So those are things that I'm really eager to look into.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're, you're publishing on the Chronicle because, honestly, it reminded me of Infowars or something. I mean, the, it's just a fascinating um, side note here about how that one publication was um, so important in, in turning public opinion in the end, though it was, it was probably not at all obvious to people in the more sort of mainstream, um, larger press outlets. So I, I'm really looking forward to that article. So um, thank you again, Dr. Bomberger, Douglas Bomberger, for being here to discuss Making Music American, 1917, and the Transformation of Culture. And my name is Kristen Turner, and this is the New Books in Music podcast.
1: Thank you.